Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jim Kirchard. As journalists who frequently produce stories focused on the environment, St. Louis Public Radio's Eli Chen and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch's Bryce Gray are no strangers to the Mississippi River or to its critical role in the region. Now they have traveled all 2,300-plus miles of the waterway, following it from Minnesota to Louisiana, and bringing home an even deeper understanding of the river. Eli and Bryce just returned the other day from a week-long Institute for Journalism and Natural Resources trip along the lower Mississippi. The experience was part of a fellowship that also included exploration of the upper Mississippi in 2018. They both join me now in the studio. Eli, Bryce, thanks for being here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, wow, 2,300 miles. Can we get this down to 20 minutes? Um, <laughs> you know, we often, I think, take the Mississippi River for granted. You know, we're, we're a river city. We have a great river city history. We have a great river city presence and future, Eli, don't we? Yeah, we do. Um, and one main thing that's sort of... Um, I guess, followed us from, you know, the top of the river um, at Bemidji or Lake Itasca all the way down to New Orleans is that everyone wants different things from the river. Um, you know, we heard from people in navigation, we heard from ecologists, we heard from, you know, um, people want to restore the river to what it used to be. And it's, it's a very complicated story. Do you agree, Bryce? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you touched on it right there. Uh, just uh, the name of the game is balancing these competing uses. And, well, they might not do such a good job of uh, of reaching that balance. Um, you know, it's tough to, again, preserve that navigation for large, uh, you know, industrial scale shipping. Um, it's also tough to, uh, you know, meet uh, these competing demands for the river while providing flood protection to both cities and towns as well as farmland, uh, you know, and then somewhere along the sides, you also need to squeeze in sort of uh, ecological uh, needs along the river and, you know, somewhere in there too, maybe leave a small toehold for uh, recreational uses. And so... So the good well, news is it's mm -hmm. steady work for science reporters and environmental <laughs> reporters because there's plenty of stories to talk about. Um, we think of the, we hear about the upper Mississippi, the lower Mississippi. We're at the break point, right? Uh, the, the, we're, we're at the point where the last locks and dams are, and then it's, it's no locks and dams further south and further, further north. Is there a competing interests between the folks from St. Louis to the north and St. Louis to the south? Or are they all on the same team here? Um, there are so many different teams. I don't know where yeah. to begin to some extent. Um, so actually, I, I kind of want to start with, um, I guess, our first speaker on the, the most recent trip that we were on. Um, so geologist Bob Chris at Washington University is not really a stranger to me or Bryce. Um, we've talked to him a lot about how flooding has increased um, along the river. And, um, and he gave us this really interesting presentation about how navigation um, has mutated the river to our liking, and I think we can play a clip from his presentation. I get so fatigued hearing of all this bleeding about the, the river's too low for the barges and the river's too high for the barges. <laughs> the river's this for the barges and things aren't free enough for the barges. We need bigger locks for the barges. What? The, what? Hell with the barges! Yeah. <laughs> 
he's uh, he's really well known for his vitriol. But um, but then there are others, you know, who say that we do need to maintain some level of commerce on the river. And um, there was a uh, the following day we we talked to some folks at Cargill, um, and we also talked to um, Marty Hessel, who is a vice president of government affairs for the American Commercial Barge Line, and um, he talked to us about how St. Louis is really key to um, you know transporting all these important commodities for agriculture. Um, but you know, recent high water levels have impacted the industry. We're not spinning our barges as fast. We've got a, a lot of loads sitting here in St. Louis and Cairo waiting to go up the upper Mississippi River because it's closed for flooding. Where normally this time of year they would have been already up there discharged and reloaded grain and be heading back this way. So we've lost probably a month on I'm going to say just in our shop about 200 barge loads that are sitting here waiting. It's funny, I was just last week or so, or a couple weeks ago, I was at America's Central Port, which has been open for 60 years now, since 1959, the old Tri-Cities Port. Talked to them, and uh, it's all about the importance of uh, uh, barge traffic, commodities, uh, being shipped down to New Orleans and out to the rest of the world. Um, so you've got a lot of competing interests here. Yeah, I would just add one thing uh, to address your, your question from a moment ago. Um, so, as you mentioned, we are at this point where the locks and dams begin north of St. Louis, uh, but then are, are absent uh, going downstream. And uh, uh, one thing our, our most recent trip sort of drove home for me is just uh, the competition there for, I guess, river sediment, you could say. We're, where these locks and dams, they make, uh, especially the upper Mississippi, navigable for the shipping industry. But in the process, uh, you know, just by being there, they sort of trap sediment. And uh, that's especially problematic down in Louisiana at the, the mouth of the river where, um, yes, there's a lot of land loss occurring, which, you know, is driven in part by rising seas and just the subsidence of, uh, you know, that, that material that's been deposited there over time. But uh, right now the Delta is sort of starved of that new sediment that it needs to, uh, uh, you know, to build new land. And so that's accelerating this land loss problem that, that they're seeing at the other end of the river down there. Yeah, we heard a lot about, um, you know, land loss down in the Delta. And there's a statistic that's thrown out a lot that, you know, um, that wetlands are disappearing at a rate of 90 um, or 100 minutes. Uh, and it's uh, it's football field oh, every sorry. Uh, football. Yeah. sorry about that oh, thank you. You get now my I understand <laughs> yeah so um, yeah we heard a lot about how people want to restore um, you know the wetlands and especially also from sportsmen who want to you know actually restore them back to the way they were 70 years ago which I think is kind of a tall order but um, it's it's fascinating to um, see the damage that's really happening down, you know, in Louisiana, and um, and it's it's you know it's unclear how much of that is really communicated upstream. Yeah, it's a, it's it was a living, breathing right river, right? It 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 had its own um, ways of doing things. And yet, the risk, even back in 1927, though, after the big flood, people said, well, we have to do something. We can't just let the river do whatever it wants to do, so we need to do something. So here we are always with these competing interests. Can we control flooding? Can we have navigation? And uh, are there, then there's this issue of land use. I mean, that's something else that has to come up quite a bit, uh, is how are we using 
uh, wetlands? How are we using floodplains and those sorts of things? So, gosh, there's so many competing interests. What are you guys going to report on now? <laughs> that I mean, I'm serious. I mean, as you go through this, there's a hundred things you could talk about, but let's bring it back to uh, St. Louis as the region, both both the, the industrial region, the the commodities region, the agricultural region. What what are the stories here for us in this region? I think there's um, there's a lot that we can report on based on this trip, and there's a lot that Bryce and I have already <laughs> reported on, um, such as the levee wars, um, you know, upstream of us. Um, but I think uh, going forward for me, um, I want to focus a lot more on the navigation industry um, and you know the conflicts between them, and you know, and what the environmentalists want. So, what are those conflicts? Let's let's. Uh yeah, so, you know, on a basic level, navigation wants, you know, the um, the Mississippi River Channel to be, you know, deep enough for, um, you know, barges to come through. Um, the environmentalists want to see restoration, um, and they want to see, um, we've, we've separated the river from the floodplain for um, quite some time now, and they want to see that sort of reconnected so that ecosystems can be restored to the way they once were. Yeah, yeah or... Um uh, you know, I guess it's been topical to come back here to St. Louis where we have flooding on our hands right now. And so, you know, that's kept uh, at least me busy for the last several days. Um, but, uh, yeah, we constantly see, uh, well, particularly with agricultural levies, there's, um, uh, you know, a dispute about, you know, should these floodplains that are largely used by, um, uh, you know, by farmers and by farmland, uh, you know, should they maybe be reconnected to the river more, uh, you know, as a place where floodwaters can be relieved and spread out uh, instead of, you know, being um, confined and constrained, constricted by, by these levees and pushed higher. And uh, uh, that's not a, an easy, uh, it's never an easy decision to, you know, uh, to say sort of who is entitled to flood protection and who isn't. You certainly need to, to protect uh, cities and towns, but um, uh, just yesterday when Governor Parson was uh, in the area, you know, he mentioned that it is important to, uh, um, to meet those agricultural interests as well. So it's, yeah, it's a, a really tough question. Um, I guess I'm looking forward to, uh, uh, well, continuing to explore things like that, but also I'm going to try to find ways to uh, to talk about, again, some of the sort of uh, the big downstream impacts and kind of competing interests that we saw on our trip, because it seems like uh, each sort of district or each chunk of the river, uh, to a certain extent, it's almost a, an every man for himself sort of mentality instead of taking a, a basin-wide look at, at river management and how to, how to best balance uh, or juggle these these sorts of competing interests so that people at the mouth aren't aren't losing out because of what's happening up here. Well, one of the things I've heard, and I'm not sure if, if you're hearing the same thing, is that there is a greater acceptance, um, not just among environmentalists, but about uh, the broader population and cities and towns and, 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 and farmers of green solutions as opposed to gray solutions, as opposed to building walls and levees that maybe the idea of restoring certain areas as wetlands or um, uh, more natural areas that could uh, mitigate uh, some of the effects of the flooding is gaining greater acceptance. Do you get that sense that uh, maybe politics is being pushed aside and the thinking is that maybe some of these ideas are of value? 
I think politics you is look still skeptical, well. I, I think well, it's just I, I think that politics is always going to play a really strong role in these discussions. But um, I have talked to uh, advocacy groups such as American Rivers that's really pushing for you know more um, more wetlands and more natural solutions for rejoining the floodplain with the Mississippi River. Um, they think that by doing so, um, we can alleviate some of these issues with flooding that have you know really impacted a lot of communities along the river. Um, but at the same time, I think, um, I don't know how much um, of that has really changed the thinking for, say, the Army Corps of Engineers. I think they still really strongly believe that gray infrastructure is going to be um, an important solution for holding back those floodwaters. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I guess I would just say, uh, well, yes and no to the question of whether things are changing. Um, you know, it seems like amid more frequent major flooding, you know, we're still hearing the, uh, uh, you know, the kind of response that we've been hearing for a long time now of we're going to build these levees back, you know, bigger, better than ever. Uh, but there seems to be some sort of growing skepticism uh, about, you know, whether that makes sense or if it's actually counterintuitively worsening flood risk by constricting these rivers. There seem to be at least some examples. Um, I'm thinking back to our trip last year uh, along the upper Mississippi where, uh, you know, it's not always in the form of kind of wetland restoration, but even places like Davenport, Iowa, uh, right downtown are, are finding ways to uh, they've sort of taken out the levee. They've made a, you know, so they have some nice riverfront access there, uh, which for them they bill as kind of a tourism cell. But it also, in times of high water, kind of doubles as flood relief to some extent. You know, they have features that uh, can be sort of, uh, uh, you know, benignly flooded, I suppose you would say. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but it becomes a, a tougher question. Uh, particularly on the lower Mississippi, where there is this more uniform set of levees. So, uh, uh, and again, those came in after the, the 1927 flood you'd mentioned. So uh, it becomes a, a tougher ask or, um, uh, I guess, a, a tougher reach to, uh, uh, I guess, figure out uh, ways in which you're going to reconnect the river to its floodplain there, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded of, uh, just because these things pop into my head, the, one of the great environmental disasters was clearing the, uh, the riverbanks of, of forest when uh, uh, riverboats and the packet boats were running up and down the Mississippi and they would pull over and they would cut down the trees to fuel the, the riverboats. Made a huge change in the river and that goes back uh, a long time before this current debate. So the, the, these questions about river use and impact on river and what we need today for it and how it affects tomorrow, that's been going on for a while. Yeah, yeah it really has. And um, I think, you know, we're going to, you know, Bryce and I have a pretty tough job ahead of us trying to figure out how to really answer that question of how should the river be used. And um, I think everyone agrees that, um, you know, flooding has gotten worse along the river. They may not agree why flooding has gotten worse, but there needs to be a solution for balancing everyone's needs. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just <laughs> going to say, I mean, your question sort of brings to mind just the constant change that the river undergoes. And uh, part of that change, too, is just uh, not only what man is doing to his banks, whether it's deforestation that you mentioned, but just the river wants to always change course as well. And so that's, again, this this fight that uh, is sort of constantly ongoing. And um, uh, I don't know. I mean, the, the Corps of Engineers, for instance, spends a lot of time undoing 
you know, what the river is trying to do of its own natural accord, whether that's dredging to maintain this navigation channel or uh, at least down in Louisiana or also up here, uh, you know, just uh, fighting to maintain banks or keep the river in its current path instead of meandering uh, as it has done through its natural history. And Yeah, yeah, we visited, it reminds me, we visited a pump station um, that was newly built in New Orleans um, to deal with, you know, it was part of the aftermath of, you know, hur- Hurricane Katrina. And um, I believe it was the public affairs guy for the Mississippi Valley District that oversees um, New Orleans and other areas of the Delta. Um, he's, he regarded the Mississippi River and, you know, nature generally as um, as sort of like an enemy. And mm. I, I thought that was such an interesting characterization of the river and, you know, and all that comes with it. Well, that's a long tradition of battling nature and trying to dominate uh, <laughs> nature. I don't think you can dominate the river. I'm wondering what you can, what you've been hearing about uh, issues regarding climate change, rain events, snow melt, that sort of stuff. Did you hear different things in the upper Mississippi and the lower Mississippi? Or are, again, is this something that people are more willing to be discussing? Yeah, I, um, I you know, I think... At several points during the trip, we try to bring up climate change, and it feels like it takes sort of a footnote in the discussion. Um, it's not, it's, I don't remember any time where it was the central part of any discussion. Um, I, we, when we started with Bob Chris at Wash U, um, he, he talked about how the increase in Midwestern flooding was really attributable to um, the levees and all these structures that we've built along the river, and that climate change. It has more effect on smaller basins, but uh, but these big rivers are so resilient and so strong that um, you know it's it's really larger factors like you know human intervention that's played a role. Yeah, did you did you hear some of the same things about? Did it come up in the discussion, or when it comes up, do people start like, okay, I'm on this side and you're on that side now? Uh, well, yeah, to Eli's point, uh, particularly upstream. Um, well, yes, climate change, you know, increases the potential for these heavy downpours. And, you know, so so therefore it can influence flooding. But, uh, yeah, as Bob Chris told us, as Eli mentioned, um, uh, well, he at least heaps more blame on, you know, just an over-reliance on levees uh, and the way that they constrict rivers. I think where climate change becomes especially uh, prevalent uh, in Mississippi River conversations is down in Louisiana, where you know they're facing rising seas, uh, and you know really have. Um, it's almost hard to understate the importance of the problem that they face down there, um, and it doesn't help. Uh, we just talked a, a little bit on our trip about uh, the state's plans for uh, how it's going to try to address climate change, address those rising sea uh, sea level problems and land loss issues. Uh, but it doesn't help that, you know, the uh, oil and gas industry is so prominent down there. And uh, yeah. uh, they've got just a, yeah, quite the challenge on their hands, to say the least, about how to address that stuff while, you know, in many ways sort of catering to or appeasing uh, this industry that that's contributing to the problem as well. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Such a complicated issue. I'm glad you guys had a chance to do this. I'm looking forward to the reporting on it. I want to thank Eli Chen of St. Louis Public Radio and Bryce Gray of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch for being here. Thank both of you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.